Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Jason Ment. Jason is the president and co-COO of Stepstone Group, a global private markets investment firm focused on providing customized investment solutions, advisory, and data services on behalf of clients representing $659 billion. I really enjoyed this wide-ranging discussion on what is just around the corner in private markets. We cover his career path from law school to his time at Citigroup, which eventually becomes part of Stepstone during the great financial crisis. We then cover the growth of Stepstone and how to keep your firm culture and transparency on point when scaling from 35 to 1,000 employees. We also discuss how private markets are coming to the high net worth channel, the impact of his role as a publicly traded company, and the near-term opportunities with AI. Please enjoy my conversation with Jason Ment. Well, Jason, welcome. I'd love to kick this off and would love to hear how you found your way to Stepstone. Scott, thank you for having me. Happy to share my circuitous path. Not one that I'd ever recommend to any of my four kids. I went to college with the idea of being in business, whatever in business meant to the son of a shop teacher and police officer. And I studied economics and thought I'd go into perhaps management consulting after that. That didn't come to fruition. I applied to be a ski instructor in New Zealand to try to figure my life out and was rejected for a visa to come there over the summer after graduation. So did what every other person who has ever sought to postpone reality has done and applied to grad school. In my case, law school. I went to NYU for law school and within the first couple of weeks there said, I'm going to be an environmental defense lawyer. Spent a summer doing some litigation work and government type work and realized that was 100% not for me. Spent the second summer doing corporate M&A in a large New York law firm and realized that that was pretty fun and was about as close as being in business uh, was going to be within the, the legal sphere. So spent about six years in private practice with two firms in New York doing M&A, originally public to private type deals, 
and then eventually private equity deals as the PE sponsors got larger and started doing more of that kind of work. Really fell in love with the PE business model, working with sophisticated buyers and sellers, and really felt that as a lawyer, you could quickly focus on the most important aspects of the transaction and work closely with the sponsors. In 2007, at the height of the market, wanted to get closer still to the business side and decided to go in-house. At that point in time, you're working 100 hours a week, but jobs were literally falling out of trees. And why was that? The deal volume was so extreme. To paraphrase Chuck Prince, before the music stopped, the music was playing rather loudly, and it was a pretty unique time. And so put my head down trying to find something to get out of the law firm life and had a few offers very quickly. Only one of them is still in business, and it's the one that I went to, which is Citigroup. They were looking for a deal lawyer in their private equity business, and it seemed like a perfect match. It was a co-investment-focused platform, so they weren't a lead sponsor. They were co-investing in deals, which rhymed very closely with stuff that I was very familiar with. They had a PPM ready for their next fund, which seemed very exciting. I joined, and within a, a few weeks of my joining, there was a new head of alternatives at City who eventually went on to become the CEO, Vikram Pandit. And he decided that retail funding for private markets was not the way to go, that if you're going to be in private markets, you should be institutionally funded. And we were fully retail funded, the business that I had joined. It was all through the Smith Barney channel and the City Private Bank. Smith Barney was eventually sold to Morgan Stanley, so further evidencing his commitment to that strategy. I was left in a strange situation at City. I was the number two lawyer on a team that was out of money. My boss at the time left very quickly after that. He didn't want to be the number one lawyer at a place that was out of money. <laughs> I was quickly a general counsel of a $10 billion AUM, fund of funds, co-invest, and MES platform at City. I learned a ton. And very quickly after joining, the financial crisis struck in earnest. And I learned even more because all the toys were breaking. And as a lawyer doing the deals, you learn a lot more when the deals go bad. And so there were transactions that needed to be restructured. There were funds that needed to be restructured. And I drank from a fire hose and all day at work. And then I'd come home at night and I'd be reading treatises in bed <laughs> and just trying to get up to speed on all these things that I honestly just didn't know much about. It was a stressful period, of course, but it was a very exciting time. And because of the turmoil that City was going through, I had the opportunity to expand into a lot of different areas that have served me well over the course of time. Became general counsel of a lead buyout firm that they had bought called Metalmark Capital, and was also the general counsel of their clean technology proprietary capital investment business. They had hoped to seed it and then raise a fund about it. Well, that didn't happen. And further still, after the financial crisis, they laid off the investment team and they charged me with overseeing a portfolio of six companies, which were themselves in various states of breakage and disrepair. We were able to save a bunch of them, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that acceleration through crisis is informative. Yeah, you live a couple days every day, you do it. That culminated in 2010 with the main business that I had joined originally, that Fund of Funds, Co-Invest, and MES business, being sold to this startup called Stepstone, who had entered the fray at City as the advisor to the City Pension for private equity. So they were deemed a safe pair of hands. And 15 of us from City joined StepStone in late 2010 when the deal closed and brought over management of the vast majority of our 
remaining funds. And that really served as the jumping off point within Stepstone. We were employees 35 to 50 of the firm at that point in time. Stepstone was still a relatively unknown platform, had been founded in 2007 by a collection of folks from PCG, Pacific Corporate Group, which had been one of the real innovators in the what's now called the solutions space, but let's call it the managed account and fund of funds space. We've been off to the races since then. And so did you create the New York office with that transaction? They had opened a one-person New York office right before the transaction because of the city pension that was staffed by the person who was a CFO of StepStone, who had been the CFO of our business at City. He actually quit our business at City, joined StepStone six months later. He was across the table from me negotiating the deal to bring us over. So the person who I had spent two and a half years sitting next door to and going to lunch probably three out of the five days a week was suddenly my counterparty across the table. So he opened a one-person office, 15 of us joined. We opened what became our first real office here in New York in late 2010. And with M&A transactions like this, it usually sounds great from the banker's perspective, but it seems like you guys are in a unique position where it actually worked out really well. Any insights for people on that? It's been something we've done well over the years. We've got a very strong track record of bringing in strong, senior, experienced teams to lead a new initiative for us and then building around that kernel. When we're thinking about M&A, the first question is, what are we trying to solve for? What kind of skill set are we looking to bring in? What are we looking to accelerate that maybe we're already doing something organically, but acquiring a business can help accelerate it? Second, is M&A the right solution to bring those skills in? Is it easier to hire a person? Easier to ask someone on the team to expand their portfolio of responsibilities? Once we get to yes on both of those, and we go out and think about who the teams that have the right capabilities might be, the diligence starts with culture, and it ends with culture. There's financial diligence in the middle, but the culture fit is really important. We're in a people business. Until the AI takes over, we're in a people business. <laughs> and getting that culture right, making sure that people understand the mission statement of the firm and really feel it in their bones is important. Our mission statement is to be the trusted partner of choice. And there's a lot in there once you unpack it. So people who are coming in and thinking transactionally as opposed to in a partnership mindset, that's not going to be a great fit. It has worked well, but it's taken a lot of focus on that issue in specific. And that means we turn down a lot of opportunities that come our way because we don't think the culture fit's going to be right. Is that a function of spending more time with people? Because I think in our industry, it's a marriage, but everyone treats everything like a first date. What does StepStone do differently to get that culture correct? It certainly does take time. And I think our most recent acquisition that we completed in 2021, Greenspring Associates, we had an existing venture growth team. And so getting that culture fit and truly integrating the two teams together was super important. We'd invested with Greenspring for years on behalf of our clients. We've done diligence on them. I've got 60, 70 page investment memos on their platform going back a couple of iterations. And we did spend quite a bit of additional time in the M&A due diligence. One of the managing partners there lives a couple miles down the road from one of our partners. They've known each other socially for years. And so we felt very comfortable, even while doing that diligence and agreeing that deal, 
during COVID. We still spent in-person time, but a lot of Zoom and MS Teams calls. And that was something very new for us. But because we had this longstanding relationship at the team level, we were able to get comfortable. So let's take a step back. Love to hear more about StepStone, how big it is, headcount. We often get told we're the largest private markets player you've never heard of. And I think that's a testament to the humility in some ways of the organization and recognizing our role in the solution space. As I said earlier, we were about 35 people when I joined in 2010. We're a thousand people now globally. The firm was founded in San Diego, California. The second office was in Beijing, China, really trying to demonstrate our commitment to being a global player right from the beginning. With the city deal, we formed the first large New York office and opened in London. So it was four offices in 2010. We're at 27 offices today globally across the Americas, Europe, Asia, and Australia. From an asset footprint perspective, we're both an advisor and an asset manager. Our total capital responsibility is $660 billion today. And our deployment each year, if I look over the last three years, we've averaged about $70 billion per annum across private equity, real estate, infrastructure, and private debt. And that's across primary fund investments, co-investments, and secondary transactions. So I said earlier, we're in the solutions space. We interact with clients in a number of different ways. We can be a data and technology provider with a research database that we make available to clients. We can be your non-discretionary advisor and help an institutional investor pick fund investments. Or we act as an asset manager whether it could be fund investments, but also co-invest in secondaries in that regard. We organize the vast majority of our capital through single investor managed accounts. It's a fund structure, but it's a single investor behind it. And it could be anything from a family office or endowment or foundation to a pension or sovereign wealth fund, insurance company, and anything I haven't mentioned. And then for some of our strategies, we organize capital in commingled funds. We've got secondary strategies across asset classes, co-invest strategies across asset classes and the like, and we'll organize commingled funds. And that allows investors that perhaps aren't large enough or don't want to write tickets large enough to justify a single investor account to still get the benefits and the power of the StepStone platform as they look to shine a light on the private markets and bring it into their portfolio. Lastly, we work with clients on, we'll call it the after trade. So some clients will do pretty extensive monitoring reporting across the entirety of their portfolio, offer that as a standalone service as well. So our goal when we meet with a group is to really fit into their operating model in whatever way works best for them. So it could be an understaffed institutional investor in a capital city and pick the country they need operating leverage, and we act in that capacity. Some people are looking to simply fully outsource privates and not really get sophisticated on their own. We can act in that capacity. As I think about how we act for different investors as we move into the wealth channel, that's really right where we are. We're not asking the individual investor, the doctor, the dentist to really understand private equity or private real estate or infrastructure. What we're asking is for them to trust us to invest that capital on their behalf and give them the exposure that they or their financial advisor has decided that they want in the portfolio. I totally agree that trying to do this business is operationally complex. 
how do you guys solve for that from a differentiation perspective compared to others in the market? If you line us up against someone who just has a flagship fund every three years and it's one strategy, our staffing model looks probably quite a bit different than those kinds of groups. Out of the thousand people that work here at StepStone, about 350 or so are investment professionals and 650 are not. And that's probably backward from what a mid-market PE sponsor might look like. That goes to the operational intensivity of the managed account model and this willingness to engage in anything from an advisor to an asset manager to a commingled fund operator. So it does take a degree of flexibility in your DNA and really wanting to be and act like a partner to clients. If someone were to come to StepStone and say, "Mm, I just like to do deals. I don't ever want to talk to a client. This isn't probably the right platform for them. We as a group are energized by that dialogue with the client and really trying to figure out how we can bring all the tools in our toolkit to their problem and solve their problem. Where do you fit into the whole equation in terms of responsibilities within the organization? So I I work very closely with Scott Hart, our CEO, and the asset class heads across our four asset classes to ensure that those 650 people who are not on the investment team are putting us in the best place to succeed on behalf of the clients. So that ranges for everything from our business development function to get new clients in the door and our investor servicing team to get them onboarded, to fund accounting and portfolio analytics and reporting teams to deal with what kind of reporting is going to go out, legal and compliance teams in order to help execute on transactions and capital formation, our portfolio management team that helps construct multi-asset portfolios on behalf of clients and helps certainly manage our evergreen products that are in the private wealth space, tax, RFP, product management teams, operational due diligence teams, which we didn't have that when I first got here, but now we have a nine-person dedicated OpDD team, internal audit and corporate finance roles that are dealing both just with being able to manage the finances of the firm, but also in 2020 during COVID, we took the company public. And so that's been an entire other area where we've had to grow the non-investment team staffing to be able to deal with that. That shifts the headcount model dramatically, I would think. Yeah. And unlike a GP, we also have a proprietary tech stack that we've developed. So we've got an entire programming team as well, software engineers, and have used that to develop a software stack that we use internally, but we also make available to clients. So that's a whole other area. There's a lot of movement in that space. How does StepStone think about that? Is that a build-buy combo? What's your perspective on that? We've done both, and we've changed our mind a couple times in certain areas as well. But the dedication to the data and technology stack started from the jump. At first, it was a Microsoft Access database, so nothing sophisticated. (laughs) But if you remember, 15 years ago, there was a lot of information out there in in the private market space, but it was trapped in PDFs, even paper files. Think about the number of file cabinets you had in 2007 versus today. It's totally different. We did a really good job of integrating the tech stack into the workflow as a required process. And that really solved the garbage in, garbage out problem that you often see with big tech builds. And so Spy Research, which is our front-end database, the investment team uses it to prosecute their work every single day. And as a result, 
the fidelity of that data and information is just very high. There was no off-the-shelf solution to build that. So we've had to build that ourselves. On the reporting side, we've used a couple of the major off-the-shelf providers. And because of our size and the complexity of our client footprint, we just found that they weren't dynamic enough. And so just felt forced into building our own there as well. That would make you think that all we ever want to do is build software. And that's probably not the case. We definitely work with a lot of off-the-shelf tools. And turns out software development, it's not the easiest thing in the whole wide world. And so if there is a solution out there, we'd love to work with it. And just interoperability and plugins, APIs, et cetera, we'd vastly prefer that, but it's not always available. So we do take that buy-build question seriously. And it depends a little bit on cost. It depends a little bit on how much dynamism functionality we think we're going to need out of the product and whether the product's out there. If you think about it, we're still largely a legal process and how to digitize that. And we have a long way to go, but I think we're at a good moment where people are starting to integrate and creating that vertical stack, but there's a lot of China to break there. 100%. When I think about the team, I guess a question comes up is how with a large footprint and you're international, how do you communicate across different offices to keep that culture intact? One of the people that was actively using video calling before the pandemic, because you can only spend so much time flying through the air in a tin can to go see people and to have real weekly contact with people. I was making people put cameras on top of their monitors back as far as 2018. So I could try to keep a little bit more in contact with folks. The second thing that I think is really important, global footprint like this, is that a command and control model doesn't work. You create bottlenecks, you create a lack of franchise on behalf of folks that you've got around the world. And so we use the words team of teams and how we describe the operating model. That is the title of a book by a guy named Stan McChrystal, General, from JSOC. And it was great. We read the book, and after reading, we said, oh, that's what we do. So now we'll just start calling it that. It's a decentralized operating model in a lot of ways. We really do try to give franchise to department leaders in the operating channel and to our asset class heads on the investment teams to really help drive things forward give them a lot of alignment with the firm, both economically as well as the scope of responsibilities, make sure that they're very clearly read in on what the priorities of the firm are, and challenge them to come up with department goals, individual goals for themselves, for their teams that align with the corporate strategy. Did that empowerment model happen semi-intentionally? It doesn't happen by chance, but it maybe happens by hiring the right people. Culture happens whether you like it or not. And so you need to be intentional about it if you want to have control over how it comes out. I think the founders and the initial partners were all folks that had worked in various organizations that had some kind of organizational challenge. Everybody had a couple of nicks and bruises on their knees from how it had gone elsewhere. And so we were very intentional in trying to drive a culture that gave franchise to folks. And one thing I'll remember from the very early days when I joined, we have open investment committee. If a thousand people wanted to show up for investment committee on Monday, they're allowed to join. I learned that was a not usual thing over the course of years, but it's a learning model. I show up at the first investment committee after joining. And in addition to the permanent members of the 
I see the deal team votes. And the person who votes on the deal team is the most junior person on the team. And that person votes first before any of the people who are permanent members of the team. That gives that person a little bit of voice right now. You generally expect if you're on the deal team, you're going to vote yes because you like the deal and you're bringing it to IC. But it hasn't been 100% of the time. We've seen people on the deal team vote no. That gives them a lot of franchise. It teaches them to think about how to have a voice, how to articulate a position, and to own a decision very early on in their career at Stepstone. There's nothing worse than having a whole group of people nodding their head on something that just because of the most powerful voice at the table agrees or disagrees. I like that. It's refreshing. And then as we expanded into asset classes beyond private equity, so we were birthed in private equity, which if we think about 2007, real estate existed certainly as an investable asset class. Infrastructure was in its infancy as an asset management asset class in the US. Private debt was really birthed out of the financial crisis. And so as we expanded, we didn't just repurpose somebody on the team and say, hey, you worked on a midstream PE deal once. Now you're our infrastructure partner. We went out and found people who had spent their career in these areas, maybe not at an asset manager, maybe in a different capacity. And as we brought those folks in, you almost had to have some deference to not only their investment acumen, but give them the franchise to build a business focused on people at LPs that you might not know. We never spoke to the head of credit at pick your public pension because we had no real reason to. We were selling private equity. They had these relationships. The culture was intentional, and then the operating model reinforced it, and it became a pro-cyclical loop. You have all these different groups, and how does the leadership team come together on that to work through that stewardship model? Within the asset class investment teams, there's an executive committee of each of those. They have a board that they report up to, and that's got representatives from outside of their business. Within the we call it enterprise services is everything not the investment team. Within the enterprise services group, we've got COOs of the different asset classes and then a couple of folks from a purely corporate perspective. And we get together on a routine basis to take operating decisions for the firm as a whole. And then we've got an executive committee for the firm, which has representatives from a corporate perspective, from the asset class investment teams, and from an operating perspective. We come together to take decisions that affect the group as a whole. In order to have this team of teams model, one of the biggest things is transparency and making sure that people understand the goals of the organization. As we've grown, making sure that we're doing that on a broader and broader basis, not just with a couple of folks in the room has been important. So just for the enterprise services team, we now do a quarterly town hall with everybody VP and above, which is probably 150 or so folks and talk about strategy, strategic projects, bring a department in focus to talk about what the nuts and bolts of their group are, because maybe there's some lessons learned that another group might be able to use. And we focus on that. And that's completely separate in addition to global town halls where we talk about corporate events. What's your typical day when you think of all these things? (laughs) There's a lot going on. Is every day a new day? It's one of those things that I truly love about this job is there's almost no day that looks like another. Mondays tend to be pretty similar because we do global staff calls. We have a partner call. We've got a business development call. So I know for at least a couple hours, my Monday will look pretty similar week to week, but the rest of the calendar is all over the place. And it's the thing that I love about it. A couple of years ago, I was talking to our CEO 
and trying to fashion what this really looked like as we've grown, what my role should really look like. And I said, you know, I think I just manned the Stepstone 911 line. And not just 911, 411, 311. You got a question, I'm your guy. You got a problem, I can help you. And I've really fallen in love with that role. I like sticky things. I like complicated things. And it lets me probably draw a little bit on that legal training to really parse some of maybe it's a new regulation and how that's going to affect our operating model or whatever it may be. But I do tend to enjoy that. I get involved in a lot of our entrepreneurial efforts. So the private wealth franchise we launched in 2019, that's been an area I've spent a ton of time on going back to probably 2015. And that can be a new thing every day in and of itself. And I love spending time on the new and shiny stuff. On the wealth piece, how much research did you have to do to get up the curve of understanding where the market is, where Stepstone is, and then trying to connect those dots? And those dots are moving around. The good news is the city DNA was very helpful there. The business that we were part of, I had mentioned earlier, it was retail funded in the pre-2012 arena. Retail funded meant something pretty different than it does today. It was qualified purchaser products, so 5 million of investable assets, high net worth investors. But we had 10,000 LPs. And so you got a sense of what it was like to have a lot of individual investors as your clients. And you got to understand what the workflow cadences are where the question is, where's my K1? Or I can't log into the system to get my capital account balance. By the way, there was no system. It all went out by paper. I definitely remember operating meetings in 2008 and nine, where the printer forgot to put stamps on stuff or whatever. That happens. That doesn't happen anymore, thankfully, but it happened then. So that was part of the DNA. We paid a lot of attention to the evolution of the semi-liquid environment. I spent a lot of time with lawyers. I spent a lot of time with operating folks at mutual fund complexes in the traditional space to try to understand what that felt like because there was a lot of rhyming behavior that needed to take place. And we got lucky. In 2015, we had the opportunity to sub-advise on the private equity-focused 40-act fund. A manager had been engaged by one of the big sponsors to create a product that was going to invest 80% of its capital in their funds, co-invest in their deals, buy secondaries in their funds. The manager that had been engaged had operated these 40-act structures in the hedge fund fund space and similar, but really didn't know much about private equity. So we were brought in to sub-advise and really focus on the portfolio construction, deal execution of the PE portfolio. I've described it. We got to learn how to shave on somebody else's face, uh, which is <laughs> it's not the worst way to learn how to shave. If I remember back to my teenage years, uh, I wish I had a volunteer. So we spent some time doing that. And when it came time for us to really put our print on what we thought a portfolio should look like in this area, we didn't say, we'll just repurpose Jason to go figure this out. We waved in a senior team that had been active in the space for a long time in various capacities, real estate and credit. Some of them had some PE experience and brought them in and grew the platform from four people in 2019 to now 65 people today, fully dedicated to operations and distribution of private wealth. And where do you think it's going? Is liquidity really a main driver for the sale for that segment? There's a tremendous education component. 
why private markets beyond the excess return? What is the diversification benefit? What does liquidity mean in the private markets? What does illiquidity risk mean for individuals? But I think that the need for the reality and the perception of liquidity to be able to be successful in the private wealth space is driving a seismic shift in how the sponsor community and the solutions providers are generally thinking about portfolio construction, legal structures, and the like, because I do think this idea of enhanced liquidity within private markets is here to stay. You see it in a number of different ways. The semi-liquid vehicles that are prevalent in the private wealth space, that's one example, but it's not the only. I think if you look at the scaling of the LP secondaries market over time, that's greatly enhanced the amount of liquidity in the marketplace. If I think back 15 years ago, and it was still looked down upon, if you had to trade in the secondary market, what's wrong with you? Or what's wrong with the fund that you're trading? And now at the individual investor level, placing these fund interests for sale on some basically bulletin board and hope that somebody would Now, it's just such a deeper market and people are actively managing their private markets exposure as investors, whether it be the individual investor or large institutions. So I think that secondary market is a big piece of it as well. And it's driving a convergence. This need for liquidity is driving a convergence in structures, but also, again, in I think how people are starting to think about their exposure to privates. It used to be, I could have my 60-40 portfolio, and then I've got a privates allocation. And more and more, we're talking to folks, and this ranges from the individual up to the institutional, where they're thinking about their equity exposure and their credit exposure. And some of that equity exposure should be private, and some of that credit exposure should be private. And they're just thinking about it on a continuum of risk return really thinking about the wealth channel and the liquidity component. And a lot of people who want to invest, but they don't want to type their own cash liquidity. So looking at the IRA sector, do you envision companies creating spinning of their own trust companies in order to manage that? I think that it probably stays in a structure that looks generally like today's market structure for the next while. I think people generally prefer to have their IRA sitting next to their brokerage account and being able to see them both together. So I think that is probably here to stay for a bit. I think that GPs trying to stand up their own dedicated wealth management platform to distribute product and kind of vertically integrate, so to speak, I think that that's a little bit challenged. They'd probably prefer to just be open architecture and distribute to all of them rather than have a captive. So I think that probably stays relatively static for the next bit. I think you are seeing the roll-up of the RIAs into larger platforms that deserve a seat at the table in driving how these conversations should go has been an interesting development over the last 10 years or so, as you've seen, in some cases, private equity help roll them up, but in some cases, them doing it independently. That's definitely a trend. And I think that's likely to continue. On a related note, whenever you would work with a multifamily office or the person managing the account would always think of private equity 
investing as have traded away. We're going to access the wealth channel. How are they going to get compensated for that? And in order to enable that transaction instead of being a barrier. When we decided to embark on this private wealth journey, we said we need to sand off the rough edges for all the stakeholders. And those stakeholders, one of them is the individual investor. Being able to commit once and not have drawdowns, that's really powerful. For that IRA investor that you mentioned, making sure that the structure blocks UBTI so that they don't suddenly have some weird tax effect we've solved for that. If we fast forward further, moving away from the subdoc to a ticker and being able to buy with a ticker, we've now solved that for two of the three fund families that we're managing in the wealth channel. You mentioned an important thing, which is how do you deal with the financial advisor, the RIA? How do you make it easier for them? And one of the things is ensuring that the reporting shows up on their custodial account because we learned an interesting thing. When you're taking subscriptions in monthly on one of these products, they wire the cash to you and it settles some days later. Well, for the period of time between when that cash has left the account and when it shows up in their custodial account, that RIA or that FA, she or he is not getting paid their wrap fee or whatever it is for that period of time. So moving to the ticker for us and daily subscriptions, it actually put more money in the pocket of the advisor because they didn't lose the 10 days or whatever it might be of fees. It's tricky because at the end of the day, we're in the commercial business and you want to have everyone get compensated fairly. But at the end of the day, you still want your net return to be seen in good light and people walk away with a good feeling about the brand. Absolutely. The experience for all of those stakeholders is important. If the FA is not having a good experience, the FA is not going to try to talk their client into the exposure. If the client's not having a good experience, they're going to tell the FA that they want to dump the position. So it's got to work for everybody. And the returns are table stakes. We talk about that a lot, whether it's in the wealth business or in the institutional business. People want more than IRR for their fees now. And the table stakes are returns. You mentioned the ticker, and I don't want to lose track of that. Tell me more about that. The semi-liquid structures that are generally out there, in the credit space, you'll see the private BDCs. In the real estate space, you'll see the REITs. In a couple of strategies, historically, we've seen a little bit in credit and a little bit in real estate. You've also seen something called an interval fund. Those interval funds take daily subscription via a mutual fund ticker, and the PE-centric strategies shied away from those interval funds for a couple of different structural reasons and instead opted for something called a tender fund. And it's the cousin of the interval fund. It closed-end, 40-act registered fund. It's permanently offered, so you can take subscriptions in perpetuity. It still tenders typically 5% per quarter to offer liquidity back to investors. But because of the monthly subdoc process, that's a pretty material difference between the interval fund and the tender fund. What we were able to do is navigate both with the legal community as well as the regulator, as well as the administrator community, and convince everyone that it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, so can't we just say it should totally work like a duck? And we were able to get a ticker assigned to our flagship private markets it covers all strategies, but 75% of the portfolio is in PE. And so it became the first sizable PE-centric private markets, semi-liquid fund to go out with a ticker. And that happened in like the summer of last year. 
after several years of operating history. And it's been a game changer from a user experience perspective for the individual investor, for the FA, and for us, as now we see flows coming in on a daily basis rather than monthly basis. It gives us quite a bit more visibility from managing that cash and being able to invest the capital quickly. It's a game changer. Kudos to the amount of earth you probably moved to make that happen. And I have one question around education. So there's education to the end investor, but I would say the education to the FA is probably just as important, if not more. 100%. And that's certainly where it starts. You start at Central, the wholesalers and the diligence team and making sure getting them comfortable on what these structures look like, what the asset class exposures look like. It then moves on to an education process with the FAs out there in the branches and giving them the materials to educate the end client directly. And going back to that mission statement of being that trusted partner of choice, letting them know that you are there for them if they need somebody to talk to their individual client. You need to be staffed for that. And that's why we have a 65-person team, because this is a lot of individual conversations, and it could be individual with the FAs. It could be groups of clients together, but you need to be prepared for that sales motion, which is just fundamentally different than an institutional sales motion. Is it more akin to the mutual fund wholesaling model? Yeah, absolutely. And what we really wanted to make sure was that it's completely analogous to that in so many ways, but you needed to do it with a team that actually understood private markets, because otherwise your sales team was going to be as uneducated about the product as that FA was, and really probably fall back on their laurels and rely on conventional wisdom rather than real information and insight. Did that change the whole governance model for compliance, kicking off more of a heavy duty broker-dealer overlay? Yes, we do have that broker-dealer overlay. We outsource the broker-dealer function, as I think a lot of private markets folks do, and it introduces another compliance regime that we need to comply with as it relates to the individuals and training and monitoring of the individual's behavior, but also the creation of marketing materials and everything else. There's a whole second process that we need to go through on everything we create for that channel. I want to shift a little bit because you guys are now a public company and you just had an earnings call the other day. And I'd love to get your thoughts on the before, after. What's it like? What we said to ourselves when we embarked on this process, and we did it for a number of reasons. Mission statement was, we wanted to make sure that for 95% of the folks that work at StepStone, this was a non-event in terms of their day-to-day. We want people focused on the clients, focused on the investments, and making sure that on the operating team, operational excellence was still first, second, and third priority. And we take the temperature from time to time just to make sure we're still delivering on that mission. And I think we have. For a select group of us, we said, our lives are about to change a lot from a day-to-day operating perspective. And I said, every day is different. Well, there's about two weeks every quarter that are not very different. (laughs) That's the prep and earnings week. Board cadence is much more rigid than it was before. There is a process that is much more rigorous on the finance team than it was when we were a private company and fully employee-owned. And the legal and compliance function has grown quite a bit. The internal controls audit function has grown. That all is quite a bit different. The number of people we needed to bring in that had expertise led to a lot of change in the corporate build-out from a personnel perspective. And 
what we did, again, similar to when we embarked from PE into real estate or infra or private debt is we didn't just say, hey, Jason, you're a lawyer. How about you're the GC of a public company now, even though you don't know much about securities law? We brought in a senior chief legal officer. We brought in a chief accounting officer who had public company experience to supplement our finance function. We brought in an FB&A person who came from the research community. We brought in a head of corporate IR who came from that function. And it felt very much like the same playbook we had played on the investment team buildouts, but it was purely on the operating front. And it's been a great experience overall. We've learned a ton about how the business operates in a way that we never would have if left to continue to operate the company as a private company in a time period where the secular tailwinds behind the business have blown quite strongly. And so revenue growth solved all kinds of operating problems. Going into a public environment, that's not good enough. And so it really forces to enhance our game. And that's been fun. It's been fun to learn more about the business that you work in every day. How hard was it actually to turn over the legal keys to somebody else after being in that seat for a long time? <laughs> I was reluctant on the way into being a lawyer and gleeful on the way out. <laughs> I've said to folks before, I retired my bar in 2019 and Jennifer Ishiguro is her chief legal officer. I said to her, this is the happiest day of my life. It's the first day my parents were ever proud of what I did for a living <laughs> was retiring that bar registration. Not a problem at all <laughs> for me. I had a good model, to be honest, Scott, which was when I joined the firm, one of the three founding partners, Jose Fernandez, he was the general counsel and chief compliance officer. And I asked that question to him. I said, Jose, are you really going to give me bandwidth to operate as the GC here? Or are you just going to want to second chair me on every single thing I do? And the smile on his face was from ear to ear. And he just said, you've got the keys. Go for it. I could not be happier. So I'd seen it work. And I was happy to put it in play again. You guys have done a lot of innovation. I'd love to just kick around any other things that on trends in the private markets that we haven't hit on. I've mentioned the data and tech stack. I think that there's a lot of action in that space. 15 and 20 years ago, you could sit around and as people were deciding what fund to invest with, they would talk about the principle of the fund. It's like, a person, they're a moneymaker. I'm going to invest in that fund. Our diligence process doesn't go into the qualitative, is that person a moneymaker? It's a very data-intensive and analytical process. And harnessing all of that and really helping to drive transparency into the diligence process and the monitoring process, I think it's really important. It fuels a couple of different things. I think it did help fuel the move into private wealth for a lot of folks, the fact that you can learn something about this now and not feel like it's quite as opaque. I think it's really important, heavily regulated LP and markets like insurance. They need to think about a lot of risk reporting and reg cap type issues. So I think it's important there. So I think the developments there are very interesting. And to your point earlier around the liquidity requirements of some of these markets, through our investment in data technology, we've developed a tool called the Daily Valuation Engine. And it telegraphs the past here a little bit in terms of what it does, but it's able to calculate what we think the GP would mark the portfolio at on any given day. And we've got that really humming across the strategies that are in our private wealth solutions. And that's why we're able to do the ticker, for instance. But institutional investors have use cases for this also. 
So if you think about a for-profit corporate pension and they need to know where the marks are going to be as they close their books for their 1231 audit, well, that PE or real estate or infra fund, that's not coming for 90 or 100 days after 1231. It's huge. Not to share the ingredients on the can of Coke, but is that really like a beta assessment and proxying on what that portfolio is? In essence, you're looking at the capital activity that's going on in the underlying portfolio, looking at the composition of it, and then figuring out how it is correlated to some type of public index. It took a lot of trial and error, obviously, to find which indices to line them up against and what the correlation levels were historically, and when they tend to blow out a little bit. To do that, though, it just takes a lot of data. And because of the amount of deployment we do on an annual basis and the portfolio size that we're monitoring, we're blessed with data. So that's an internal tool, and then can clients also access it? We've made it available, the outputs, they're not running the Python, but we make the outputs available to clients as well if they're interested, for sure. And what type of client is looking for that, if you could generalize? It's varied. I mentioned corporate pensions. Some of them think that there's a use case there. It helps them a bit. The Wealth Channel, obviously, are very interested in it. Some asset managers as well tend to like it. It it lines up well with how they think about their public exposure. When we post the results on our LinkedIn, that one gets a lot of likes. (laughs) What's the thought process for StepStone on AI and where we are today? We're lucky to have a deep tech team. And so they are spending a lot of time looking at the various threats and opportunities of AI to the business and to the client base. We are beta testing a number of different tools today that will drive a lot of operating efficiency and free up time to focus on more higher value add analyses on behalf of clients. There's a clear use case. On the operating team, I think that there are a lot of repetitive tasks that require synthesizing data and synthesizing information that's in prose form. So that's super useful. Reading the notes of audited financial statements, you name it, and looking for some keywords there, super helpful adding a lot of operating leverage. Still in beta tests across a number of these projects, I think about how deep is the pipeline. I think we're up to something like 80 or 100 different projects that have been submitted by people on the team and have been vetted as that's something the tool could probably do. And how you prioritize that? We're just triaging on how heavy is the lift and how big is the impact. You know, we'll see. That's Gen 1. Gen 2 is obviously going to be helping to drive insights that you couldn't have on a human scale. And so we'll have to see what that looks like over time. I would guess that you guys have so much information within your four walls and you guys are, I mean, market leader in a lot of it, just the data, just being able to consume and prosume all that information and with greater visibility, we're going to see that improvement over time. I'd love to close out. We close with two questions. So the first question is any advice that you would give to an emerging manager? Think like a partner, act with transparency, and be a fiduciary. I think if you do those three things as an emerging manager, you're going to be in good stead. The Ted Lasso version of it is doing the right thing can never be the wrong thing. And what do you mean by thinking like a partner? If your operating model is going to be, I'm going to sell you my fund, and then I will see you at the annual meeting. And those are the only two times we're ever going to talk. That is not a partner. We call these things general partner and limited partner. And I think 
giving some real weight to those words is important. And so having a dialogue during the course of the engagement is really powerful. You're going to learn things about what your client's needs are, and maybe that's going to inform your strategy. Maybe that's going to inform the terms of your fund. Maybe that's going to inform how you report out to your LP and not simply rely on what did they negotiate for in their side letter, but actually think about how do you solve their problem. And this is an industry where re-up rates are pretty strong, generally, if performance is good, but they can always be better. And by thinking like a partner, I think GPs will see the benefit of that. That's great. And then the last question I have is, what piece of material, book, article, Twitter account, anything that you recommend to people in industry? I'll toot our own horn for a second, which is our operational due diligence team has what they call their operational alpha program. And they'll actually engage with GPs and talk about everything ops, best practices that they see across the industry, and we'll coach them up give them vendor lists, give them best practice guides across a variety of different topics. So I usually kick them to Liz Ferry, who runs our ODD team. But out in the industry, I think devouring everything on the ILPA website as a GP, that's a good first step. There's a lot of information there, and it informs you as the GP how LPs are thinking about the interaction they want to have with you as their sponsor. And I think one of the bedrock principles of having a good, solid relationship with someone is empathy and really understanding where they're coming from and learn how the other person thinks. Good stuff. Jason, this has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot and thanks for your time. Scott, thank you for yours. Really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.